0: Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix, CD. People said to me, you can't do all that in one day. You can't do a trooping of the colour, marching out
1: of one armoury, march into a new armoury, dedicate two new messes And open the museum all in one day. That's too much, RSM.
0: Welcome back to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. We're going to continue on with our interview with Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix.
1: So in order to make it fitting that we were leaving Fort York Armory, and I knew the presentation of colours was coming up, I held a Trooping of the Colour Within Fort York Armoury. Now, when you read the drill manual, it says the trooping of the colour can be modified to fit the location where you're doing the trooping, so long as certain elements are capped. So I kept the base, the main elements of the trooping, and modified it for the space of Fort York because you actually need more room than what Fort York permits. But the colours of the Toronto Scottish had not been trooped. Since I believe 1975, it was quite significant for us to do a trooping of the colors because before a presentation of colors, it's traditional to troop your own color before you do a presentation. So you troop the old color one last time, and then you go into your presentation cycle. So then we had all members of the regiment, all members of the regimental family, except you, who was getting ready to be married up north. I think I excused you from that. So
0: you're good. You did. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we had all members of the regiment on parade, all former members of the regiment seated in one bleacher, specifically Mark, and then members of the regimental family sort of seated throughout the crowd. General Chapman, former commanding officer of the Toronto Scottish right now, he's appointed as the deputy commander of the 4th Canadian division. He was our reviewing officer for the Trooping of the Colour, and he was the reviewing officer for the March out at Fort York. And we executed the trooping in front of the collected regimental family and The soldiers, this was in September, and the soldiers performed amazingly. I had a select group that had to do some very complex drill movements in order to execute the trooping. There were turns on the march that had to be done. There were forms on the march that had to be done, and they had to be learned in short order. Guys like who's coming to mind right now? Jeff Boomhauer, Alan Craigie. Sorry to everybody whose name I forget. This is like the Academy Awards. But these guys had to learn these these drill movements on the fly and get right up to speed for the trooping and their dedication and professionalism really paid off. We executed the trooping and then we conducted our our final parade within Fort York Armory. At the end of the parade inside Fort York Armory, Colonel Neal invited all former members of the regiment to fall in and march out. When we did that, they formed the Fort number four guard. They were led by Colonel Stewart, and the guard sergeant major was Jack Bateman, a former RSM of the regiment, who had two brothers that served with the regiment. One was also a former RSM, and one was killed in World War II. So Jack Bateman was the guard sergeant major, and Colonel Stewart was the guard commander. So then we marched out of Fort York. We did one lap of the parade square and straight out the doors. When we went out the doors, we had all the units... That had previously been at Fort York Armory except for one do a street lining and we marched out with members of the units in their street lining so believe it or not the 48th Highlanders of Canada did live at Fort York Armory between the time of University Armory and Moss Park Armory so in that sort of gap they shared the lines with the Toronto Scottish we had the signals out 32 signals regiment Queens York Rangers 32 Combat Engineer Regiment and the Royal Regiment of Canada. The only unit that was absent was the Irish. It's actually the 2nd Battalion of the Irish Regiment of Canada. The 1st Battalion was disbanded. The invitation was extended, but it was just a bridge too far for them to come all the way down from Sudbury to do a quick little street lining. But nevertheless, we wrap up on the exhibition grounds and we board the buses. Go on to the other end, quick little parade break. Allow our guests to make the transition from one armory to the other. And the parade continues as though it had never ended. And the regiment marches through the streets of Etobicoke and halts in front of the new armory. The new armory is called the Captain Bellenden Seymour Hutchison VC Armory, normally known as Captain Hutchison Armory. Captain Hutchison was a medic, actually was a doctor from Illinois, who came to Canada to fight in World War One before the U.S. had entered the war. And he's one of the very few Americans to have won the Victoria Cross and when he won the Victoria Cross he was assigned to the 75th Battalion he is the Victoria Cross winner for the Toronto Scottish so the armory is named after him and we had his grandson come up and do the ribbon cutting so we had the colors on parade we had the CO, the honorary I believe General Chapman came out as well to the new armory for the ribbon-cutting we had members of the regimental family shadow the dog everybody was out on the lawn of the armory watching the parade and we cut the ribbon and the first presence into the building officially formally was the regimental colors color party included at least sergeant Daniel renzik and I can't remember who else was in that color party on that day Victor Cheney may have been in that color party but I'm not sure they marched in the colors and put them up on display in the very front hall of the new armory when members of the regimental family entered the new armory remember There was a lot of broken hearts that we were leaving Fort York Armory. A lot of people were very upset that we were the first. They considered us the first to leave. But in fact, the Irish regiment had left and the engineers had left Fort York Armory. So we have the members of the regimental family coming into the building for the very first time. And I personally hung, as the RSM, every single picture within that building, along with a crew of of workers like uh, Sergeant Sean Pinaretta, at the time Sergeant Margaret Star Wars, and of course, uh, at the time, Warrant Officer Alan Craigie. Margaret Star Wars and Alan Craigie have been promoted since, but nevertheless. So we had done it right Everything was flawless. We had pictures hung on every surface, museum quality picture hangers that Al Craigie had discovered. We pulled stuff out that had been in storage for at least 45 years, and it was on display within the building. And then what did we have? We had Stan Edgerton, who lost his two brothers in World War II. Um, His father fought as an artilleryman in World War I, and the Junior Ranks mess opened their mess and dedicated to this Edgerton family. And it is now named the Edgerton Mess. And the family's medals are on display, custom-built, locked display case, museum quality, built by Sergeant Pinaretta by hand. Then we enter the warrant officers and sergeants mess. Well, what did we do with the warrant officers and sergeants mess? We dedicated it to the Bateman family. So Jack Bateman, his brother was a, an RSM of the regiment formerly. His other brother was killed in uh, World War II and his father, I believe, I should know this off by heart, so I'm kind of embarrassing myself right now, but I believe his father even served with the regiment, and they were all sergeants and warrant officers. Two of them became the RSM, so the two brothers became the RSM. And Jack's son is uh, who was with the Queens York Rangers. All their medals are on display, identical display cabinet built by Sergeant Pinaretta, and we dedicate that as the Bateman mess. So it's not the Warrant Officer's and Sergeant's Mess of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. It is the Bateman Mess. And then we go around and we rededicate the museum. And the museum is open. And people said to me, you can't do all that in one day. You can't do a trooping of the colour, marching out of one armory, march into a new armory, dedicate two new messes, and open the museum all in one day. That's too much, RSM. You're asking too much of us. But we did it. We pulled it off and it was flawless. It went down so well. It took a little while, but the band also got their space sorted out for them, their practice space, and their own area. But moving on, so then I had to leave the Toronto Scottish, and I went and deployed as a Chief Warrant Officer to Africa in an organization known as the International Military Advisory and Training Team, IMAT, in Sierra Leone. That was a multinational task force, and when I took that spot as the Sergeant Major of that task force, I was assigned Not a lieutenant colonel as I normally was accustomed to, but a full colonel from the British Army Regular Force. He was an Armored Corps officer. He was with the 9th, 12th Lancers. Colonel Jamie Martin. He was my command team partner. And I also had a Canadian command team partner, which was... Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon. So I had essentially two commands. It was a multinational task force, but we had our Canadian chain of command and we had our IMAT chain of command. When I was working strictly with the Canadian part of uh, of the organization, I would fall under Lieutenant Colonel Vernon. When I was working under the multinational part of the chain of command structure, I would fall under Colonel Martin. Now Colonel Martin got hurt playing soccer recreationally just within the unit lines and he tore his Achilles tendon. So he's medevaced pretty much right away. For the British army, this was not a deployment. This was a tasking or a posting for them. It wasn't really something like us where we were on an operational tour. They were on basically they're just going to work and they just happened to work in Africa instead of in London or whatever. I had a lot of uh, cultural learning curves. I had a lot of also a lot of experienced leaders that i was working side by side with guys like chad gallant from the royal canadian regiment master warrant officer guys like chief warrant officer emmett kelly who i maintain contact with if not monthly then weekly since our tour guys like uh chief petty officer second class steve smith who was a good friend while we were deployed i don't keep in touch with him as much now but i probably should it was almost like everything i had done in my whole entire military career, prepared me for that deployment. Sierra Leone was conducting their 50th anniversary parade of their independence. And in in the 1960s, Sierra Leone delayed their independence to help other nations gain their independence because they were so forward and so advanced. And it's almost depressing to think how quickly they fell into the status of where they were during the conflict in Sierra Leone. So they had a, a parade. So I was a parade advisor for the Sierra Leone Army. I ran a drill instructor school to get their drill instructors up to par. So when they were doing their preparations for drill that they were they were checked out and good to go to teach drill. So I pulled in drill instructors from all over the country and we went to the bare basics of drill instruction. When they went to prepare for the parade, they were top notch and they had it nailed. Then I ran a Warrant Officers course. And what did I use? I used one of the tools that was brought to the Toronto Scottish by General Chapman when he was our CEO, the situational leadership model, bringing a different type of leadership style to a different type of learner. And we brought that in. And Emmett Kelly, who was deploying into IMAT while I was on leave, on his first day on the job, he had to jump in and teach that course that essentially he and I designed over, over the internet leading up to his deployment. And it was understood that when that course kicked off, he would be brand new on the ground, and he had no hesitation of being in that role. Chad Glant would have been on his handover, so he was involved in making sure that Emmett wasn't left hanging out to dry, but Emmett was quite capable of running a worn officer course on his own nevertheless, and we really did well on that. Another thing is I got extended in my tour because they needed machine gun instruction capability within the Republic of Sierra Leone Armed Forces. I got extended because I was qualified as a machine gunner and I was counted on to develop those machine gun instructors. So instead of teaching them how to operate machine guns, I taught them how to instruct machine guns. I taught them machine gun theory. It was very intimidating to grab a Warsaw Pact Soviet 12.7 millimeter heavy machine gun that I had never seen before. And to pull it out of the crate when it was still packed in grease and clean it up with diesel fuel and learn how to put it all together, learn how to strip it down, name each and every part. I built a manual on how to operate it, how to troubleshoot all the stoppages and all the problems that you could possibly have with it. And then at the end of that, we ran a range. There were a couple of challenges because I wanted to put vehicles in the template. And there was a lot of hesitation, not because of what you would normally think environmental concerns, but more of that dilapidated pickup truck with a broken back. They genuinely believed they could put that pickup truck back into service. There was a lot of hesitation to haul that pickup truck out into the training area and shoot it. Because they really wanted to fix that pickup truck and put it back. And I'm like, the floor is rotted. The back is broken. There's pieces missing all over. There's no way this pickup truck will ever be put back into service. But they insisted, no sir, no, sir. this one we will fix. Don't you worry. We will fix this one. And it's like, all right, whatever. So we ended up using, like, just being scavengers and, and scavenging all over the camp for anything we could build targets out of. I had the carpenters at IMATS grab scraps of wood and build figure 11s out of them. Just silhouettes, and we got them to cut AK-47s, and we would nail the AK-47s on the silhouettes. So we had a section of advancing infantry based out of wooden cutouts. And then one guy found a soccer net uh, frame, not the net. But the actual metal frame, and we go, how can we use that? So we pound it into the ground, and we get a, a length of bamboo about twelve feet long, and we go, okay, this is going to be a tank. So we get them to cross-hatch some weaving, some prom leaves, and weave it in, and make a silhouette of a tank out of, or at least of our infantry fighting vehicle out of this soccer net other little things we just garbage and scrounging and then when we unpacked the ammo we discovered quite quickly that every single round had to be fed into the belts one at a time each crate of ammo came with two cans of ammo inside and each crate came with a can opener and it was like opening a can of sardines you had to use a can opener to open your crate So you could get the ammo. Each gun came with belts with no ammo in it. Each crate came with the bullets. So we had to assemble that. So then the wooden crates, we built a structure out of the wooden crates as another target downrange. One thing that ended up being a little bit of a concern is that they didn't have any tracer rounds. Not only for the 12.7mm Dishka, the DShKM, but also for the GPMG, what we would commonly know as a C6 or what the Americans would commonly call an M240 Bravo, or what the Belgians would call the FN Mag 58. There was no tracer around. So when, when we paused for supper and waited for the sun to set, we tried different combinations to try and make a worthwhile night shoot because that was one of the competencies we wanted to establish with them. And we tried using headlights of the vehicle to try and shine downrange and illuminate the targets so they could fire when there's illumination. We tried coordinating with the mortar course, and they could fire up paraflares, but that didn't end up working out at all. And then we tried controlling the fire by observing the strike, and it was a mishmash. And all we were doing, quite honestly, we were making noise. So I called the range staff in together, and we're all talking to each other. And we end up just realizing that this is a complete waste of time to just blast ammo downrange. So I call the instruction staff together, and we all pop an ear. We had our ear protection on. And we take one ear off and we're just talking in a circle. And way out in the distance, we hear, help, please stop shooting, help us, there's children here, help us. So we're like, where's that noise coming from? Well, it was coming from downrange. And what had happened, we had alerted all the locals not to go out into the jungle where we were using as our backstop. We use a mountain. As a backstop, and we told them not to go out there. And all day long, we're pounding it and setting fires off in the jungle, and just hitting the whole side of the mountain with 12.7 ammo and 7.62 ammo all day long. And then we we hear this noise. There's people out there down range, and we had security. We had the military police providing security on the flanks of the range so that people wouldn't go in in the morning. But I guess some people knew some other trails and they slipped in, whatever. So one of the uh, Sierra Leone. Warrant officers Organizes a quick little search party. We grab a couple of medics from the Sierra Leone Army, and they go downrange to find out what the sound is. Well, there was a couple of people, farmers, they call them. They they were farming something that uh, might get you in a little bit of trouble if you're farming this here. But anyhow, the farmers, they, they were out all day drinking palm wine and smoking the local weed, and they decided it was time to go home when we stopped firing for that supper break that I mentioned. So they start walking home. And then we start up our night shoot. Well, they took cover behind the soccer net. That's what they used. One of our registered targets on the machine guns, pre-registered targets that we could dial in and fire on was what they took cover on. And all it was was a soccer frame with palm weave as making the silhouette. And that's what they took cover behind. And everyone, everyone came out of that. Okay. It ended up being safe, but man, that that would have been, that would have been it for IMAT if we'd have killed some locals running our range. Uh, That would have been the end of us. But anyhow.
0: Potentially a catastrophic situation there.
1: Yeah, definitely not your, your best PR day, but anyhow. (laughs) And then finally, as a chief warrant officer, well, not finally, because I'm still a chief warrant officer, and I do believe there is a little bit more to go here, at the brigade level, at 32 Canadian Brigade Group, first of all, I've been paired up with two amazing Brigade commanders. My first brigade commander was Colonel James Claggett. He and I got along fantastically. The amount of confidence that he put into me was surprising. I'd come to him with a question or a concern and he would just tell me that it's my call. And I genuinely believed it was for him to make the decision. He says, No, you're the brigade sergeant major. You make that decision. That falls within your arcs. And I fully trust the answer you're gonna give me. When he wrote my PER, PER is essentially a personal evaluation report. I was wondering who this person was that he had written of. It's just joking around here because it was quite stellar, but I mean, I suppose it should be because I'm the Brigade Sergeant Major, but nevertheless working with James Claggett and getting to know Darcy and who he is, and some sometimes when you're in that command team relationship, you you talk about things. I mean, there's there's some things he took me into confidence with that really, I, obviously I'm not going to share, but really reinforces that bond of trust. And my other command team partner at the Brigade level is Colonel Dwayne Hobbs, and Colonel Dwayne Hobbs and I were command team in the Toronto Scottish when I started in 2006 once again working with colonel hobbs he is so experienced and so professional and he has a sharp sense of humor that just it doesn't matter how mind-numbing the situation is or how low you might think you are he can throw out the quick little witty sarcastic one-liner and just get the whole room laughing without offending anybody as well which which is a little bit of a magic talent but anyhow and once again i've gotten to know his wife laura and they're once again you You talk with full confidence in your command team relationship, and he's confided things as well. It's just a a superior bond of trust when you can speak at that level. And if you have a good friend that you've known for years and years, you'll have that conversation with them, or maybe you won't. But when you're talking to your coworker or your superior commander, (laughs) more aptly put, and you're able to talk at that level, that level that takes years of trust to establish and can talk at that level, it's, it's... it speaks volumes of what is important about that command team relationship and how different it is from anything else. A couple of things happened while I've was while i been the Brigade Sergeant Major. Two of them were quite significant. The one was the Battle of York Parade, which maybe, in retrospect, was one of those bit-off-more-than-you-can-chew kind of events. Our brigade staff, at all levels, were into it up to their elbows at least working over each fine detail and making sure that that plan went off smoothly. We had musicians from all over the place. We had Navy presence on parade. We had members of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment marching down University Avenue with 32 Brigade on the Battle of York Parade, the 200th anniversary of the Battle of York. We made connections with the City of Toronto that that I called upon for other events. People like Sandra Shaw from the City of Toronto. Incredible people that we got to meet and work together and build that parade. At the end, there were were some glitches, there were some minor little things. For example, well, maybe I shouldn't give examples, but nevertheless, we had the Navy with their brass band at the lead of the parade, and then we had three RCR with their Highland band immediately following them. Well, what happens when you have a brass reed band followed by a pipe band? Well, there's a bit of a gap. So as we went down the parade route, this gap just continued to build, until myself and the brigade commander at the head of the parade with the navy behind us were miles ahead of the remainder of the parade because behind us was a highland pipe band leading 3RCR. Oh and also 3RCR got a presentation of colors on the steps of Queen's Park that day presented to them by the Duke of Edinburgh so that was very significant for 3RCR as well. At the end of the day After we were baked in the sun in uh, April sun, very sunshiny day, very nice day, but still baked in the sun. uh, Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson turned a particular shade of red that day. Those of you that were there will remember him peeling by the evening. But that evening, we held the first ever Toronto Garrison Sergeants and Warrant Officers dinner. And I had invited the Chief Petty Officer of the Navy Tom Rifficell, the Chief Warrant Officer of the Air Force, Kevin West, who is now the Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer, and the Chief Warrant Officer of the Army, Chief Warrant Officer Mike Hornbrook, they were all in attendance as members of the head table with Colonel Claggett, myself, Chief Warrant Officer Alain Guimont from 4th Canadian Division, Chief Warrant Officer Kent Clapham from 4th Canadian Division. Rounding it out was Scott Patterson. And something I did that was different is, instead of rows, which you would typically see at a mess dinner, the long rows, and people sitting with their buddies, I came up with a seating plan that was kind of a job in itself. But each table was set in a horseshoe sort of fashion. So you had people seated along three sides so that nobody had their back to the head table. And then each table had a guest of honor. So, for example, one table had Honorary Colonel Jeffrey Dorfman, who was a previous District Sergeant Major, one of my predecessors. Another table hosted Chief Warrant Officer Mitch Hepburn, who is the Brigade Sergeant Major from 33 Brigade. So each table had a VIP of their own, and each table was hosted by... A unit RSM. And then each table had a mixture of sergeants and warrant officers from the guests, but they were mixed. So people were saying, Well, how come I don't get to sit with my buddies? Well, you understand the concept that I'm trying to get to. I don't want you sitting with your buddies. I want you sitting with people who maybe 10 years from now you're going to call on a favor or you're going to call on a connection because you broke bread with them at the first ever Toronto sergeants and warrant officers mess dinner. And I really hope that that ends up paying off. That kind of summarizes. My term so far as a Chief Warrant Officer, I know that I have a little bit longer to go as a Chief Warrant Officer. I'm going to hand over the appointment of Brigade Sergeant Major to Chief Warrant Officer Grant Lawson in November. And I know that the Brigade will be in exceptionally good hands and in an exceptional great shape when I hand over. And then I'm going to be moving on to the Gray and Simcoe Foresters and remaining as a Chief Warrant Officer, being the RSM of the Grand Simcoe Forest, or something I'm looking forward to immensely. Something else that I've always treasured, and it's very privileged as a Brigade Sergeant Major, is the outstanding amount of trust and respect that... I have received from the commanding officers of the regiments within 32 brigade these are relationships that are dear to me that these people that i I just met when i was appointed perhaps for the first time actually one of them i met as a young private when he was a sergeant in germany and i'm trying to get him get him an interview on the show but nevertheless these commanding officers and these rsms and i didn't know what type of reception to expect when I hopped into this role, but I've always been impressed by the trust and respect that I've, I've received from these commanding officers and RSMs throughout 32 Brigade. Does that answer
0: your question? Well, it does <laughs> in, in great detail. But I, I think part of that uh, you spoke quite a few times or a number of times in your answer detailing the relationship that you have in a command team, and that really the reality is is you have your specific command team at the point in where you and the commander are at the pointed end of the stick. However, you also talk about the relationships you have with other command teams, because as that sergeant major, you have maybe minor or lesser command team relationships with all the other COs and the sergeant majors of those units. So you have not lesser, they're just A little lower in the totem pole, but knowing you and knowing your professionalism and your level of professionalism and seeing your growth in your career, that that doesn't shock me and surprise me in any way, shape, or form. That those people would honor their relationship with you and provide you or give you that respect and that two-way relationship that uh, is so key and critical when you're in a command position like that. It's it's imperative and it's one of those things that you would just that you by the nature of who you are, just sort of garner and run with. Right. Absolutely. I guess I'd be a fool to disagree with you, but anyhow. (laughs) Well, it looks like we've run out of time for this segment. Please stay tuned and come back to hear the remainder of my interview with Chief Warrant Officer Lacroix.